0: Hello, campus cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five and it was actually requested by a listener. So it's the first official listener requested episode I've covered. And that means I'm really anxious to tell you guys all about it. It was a pretty well-known case at the time in the 90s. So you may or may not have heard the story, but perhaps if you have, you might learn something new as well. It's the story of two roommates attending the very prestigious Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In the spring of 1995, after Trang Fuang Ho told her friend and roommate, Sinadu Tedesi, that she would no longer be rooming with her the next school year, Sinadu took the ultimate revenge, tragically ending the lives of both of these young women in a brutal murder-suicide event. This episode is titled A Roommate's Revenge. So without further ado, let's get started. In May of 1995, junior pre-med student at Harvard University, 20-year-old Sinadu Tedesi missed a final exam and was marked absent from her physics class. Now, Sinadu was a very educated, accomplished student who took academia very seriously. So missing a test was not in her character. However, because the exam was given on a Saturday, Harvard officials would not realize her absence until after the weekend on the following Monday, which would be a day too late. What nobody knew when Sinadu skipped the exam was that she was at home in her dormitory on campus, the Dunster House, and she was planning a revenge attack on her friend and roommate, 20-year-old Trang Fuang Ho. Both Sinadu and Trang underwent a long, hard journey to get to their final destination of Harvard University. You see, both students were originally from third world countries, and and to say they had many hardships along the way, well, would be the understatement of the century. Both young women were pre-med students at Harvard, which meant both of them were incredibly gifted and highly intelligent. According to an article by Mary Gateskill for Salon.com, Trang Ho escaped Vietnam at the age of 10 with her father and her sister. They escaped on an illegal boat right after the Vietnam War ended and eventually ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, or actually near Boston in the suburb of Medford. But this was after having to stay for almost a year in an Indonesian refugee camp. According to Gateskill's article, conditions at the camp were very harsh and violent and extremely dangerous. Also, one podcast that covered this story, Sisters Who Kill, said Trang's father even made his daughters dress up like boys or males instead of females, which would keep them from any unwanted advances from others. Basically, it was a defense or precautionary decision their father made in effort to further protect them on their journey to the U.S. The only difference between Trang and Sinadu, well, besides their very different personalities was the fact that Trang did spend some of her life in America, where she was able to become familiar with American customs, and basically she had way more time to adjust to living in America than did Sinadu. However, even though the two seemed quite similar given their backgrounds, they were actually raised quite differently. For starters, Trang was very close to her family, and since they were in Boston or the Boston area, she often went to see them on the weekends or or really just any and every opportunity she had to see them, she would take. Trang also worked hard to help and support her family, which is why she wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to help give her family a better life in America, and Harvard was going to be her pathway to do just that. According to a piece in the Washington Post by Christopher B. Daly, Trang was the valedictorian of her class at Boston Technical High School, which helped her land a scholarship to Harvard. Once at Harvard, Trang made lots of friends and she was involved in several extracurricular activities, including being the president of the Harvard Vietnamese Student Association. In that role, she tutored refugees in Cambridge, where Harvard is located, and she also volunteered at a homeless shelter for women, as well as worked in a research laboratory at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Ultimately, Trang had her heart set on being a pediatrician. Sinadu, on the other hand, did not have any family, particularly her immediate family nearby whom she could go visit when she wanted to. Now, several sources say Sinadu did actually have extended family in the area, but all sources say she was not close with them at all and she rarely saw them. Sinadu grew up in an upper middle class family in Ethiopia. Though her family was more financially stable than Trang's family, she still faced difficult situations of her own. For example, she grew up during Ethiopia's Red Terror campaign, which evoked mass chaos and the atmosphere in Ethiopia at the time was basically a war zone. According to Salon.com, during this time, military soldiers would kill citizens and then drag their bodies to the front doorsteps of their families' homes. And the soldiers would then demand the family of the deceased to pay for the bullet that killed them with no remorse or empathy or even human feelings at all. According to a piece by Joshua Wolf Schenk for Washington Monthly, 30,000 people in Ethiopia died during this campaign of terror, which began when Sinadu was just two years old. Also during this time, when Sinadu was seven years old, her father was actually imprisoned by the regime of the Red Terror, and he remained a political prisoner under the Marxist government for two years, which made their family dynamic shift. After that, their family basically had a war mentality of trust no one but yourself All you have is family, yourself, and your academics. And it was because of these incredibly harsh and violent conditions that Sinadu was not allowed to go outside and play or really do much of anything. Instead, her parents forced her to focus all of her attention on her studies and academics. So Sinadu did just that. Ultimately, she became one of the smartest students in the whole country, not just in her school, but the whole country. And she also earned admission to Ethiopia's prestigious International Community School. While in school, according to the Washington Post, Sinadu became the president of the student government, and she, too, graduated as the valedictorian of her class, which garnered her a full-ride scholarship to the famed Harvard University. Once at Harvard, Trang and Sinadu led very different social lives, and they didn't actually meet until their sophomore year when they were assigned to be roommates. I think, from what I gather, it was because of their similar backgrounds that they were assigned to be roommates, which, like we've discussed, were really not all that similar. Anyway, Sinadu was a very quiet, shy, reserved person. One student, Humphrey Watonga, who described himself as Sinadu's good friend, told the New York Times that Sinadu's shy personality made it very difficult for her to make new close friends. He also said that she was, quote, totally isolated, always by herself, end quote. A lot of Trang's friends, on the other hand, described her as quiet as well, but those who truly knew her, who were her close friends, said train was actually very outspoken and outgoing, which is evident through all the extra stuff she was involved in on campus. Both young women, however, were studious and dedicated to their academics, as most students at Harvard are. And according to an article by Fox Butterfield for the New York Times, they seemed to be well-matched as roommates. At least at first they were, because they both dreamed of becoming doctors to help others, and they both held tight to family-centered traditions of their homelands. But... Under the surface, things between Trang and Sinadu were not so great. This was because Sinadu became very attached to Trang and not in a healthy best friends type of way. She basically idolized her and put her on a pedestal. As I said, she didn't have many friends. So Trang was one of Sinadu's only friends, according to Salon.com. Before meeting Trang, though, Sinadu was feeling very isolated, and her feelings of isolation grew the whole time she was at Harvard. According to the New York Times, not only did Sinadu not have many friends, but she also would rarely see her family. Apparently, in the whole three years at Harvard, Sinadu only went back to Ethiopia to see her family one time, just once. That was it, and the school actually paid for it as part of her scholarship. As Senadu's feelings of isolation grew, her loneliness manifested through many, many diary entries where Senadu poured out her heart and soul. But the entries, well, they were alarming, to say the least. For example, she would talk to herself in third person, and in one entry, she told herself to, quote, make people like you, do not show what you really think, put on a mask, end quote. But when those bits of advice to herself failed, she described her, quote, heart failure thing, end quote. And she also described herself as, quote, dead and it is hard to warm myself up, end quote. Sinadu also talked about her family in her diary. She said she was dealing with unspeakable pain and that she never really felt loved by her family. She wrote about her home life saying, quote, there was no comfort to seek, no warmth, end quote. She also described how she felt hated and attacked by her mother and how there was no real feelings in her family. According to her diary entries, her family constantly ridiculed her, calling her ugly and, quote, very black, end quote. So, as you can see, Senadu's deep troubles basically festered while she was at Harvard. According to Salon.com and several other sources, including the Crimson, Harvard's campus newspaper, at one point, Senadu became so overwhelmed with feelings of loneliness that she went through a phone book and began sending a five-page letter to random addresses from the book, essentially pleading with strangers to befriend her. I'm obviously not going to read you the whole five-page letter but i am going to read you an excerpt that was published in an article by joshua wolf shank for washington monthly that excerpt from the letter reads quote as far as i can remember my life has been hellish year after year i became lonelier and lonelier i see friends deserting me they would take every chance to show me they did not have any love or respect for me high school turned out to be even worse If I went early or left late, I would be roaming the yard or deserted hallways alone while other students roared with laughter or talked their hearts out standing in groups. Home was not a comforting place. I swallowed my pain and anguish just as my siblings did to theirs. I was so lonely, but I hung on tight because I wanted to come to the States in search of a solution, end quote. In her letter, she also begged people for, quote, a few hours from your week please do not close the door in my face, end quote. One woman who received the letter by happenstance was an acquaintance of a Harvard administrator. So naturally, that woman reached out to the administrator out of concern for Senadu. In turn, the administrator shared the letter with the master of Dunster House, the dorm where Senadu resided, but apparently the letter was simply filed away and no further action was taken. Okay, side note, That was a huge mistake on Harvard's part. And I'll circle back to this eventually, so put a pin in this piece of information. But let's just say that's strike one for Harvard. Also, besides her intense feelings of loneliness and isolation, Senadu was feeling pressure academically too. So much so that the Crimson described it as a, quote, spiraling plunge into psychosis, end quote. Everyone who did know her or who was around her said Sinadu was always studying, whether it be in her room, with traying, or in the library. But Harvard's rigorous curriculum was getting to be too much for Sinadu. The New York Times reported that she started feeling overwhelmed and pressured by the intense academic competition on campus. One student, Mohammed Khan, who was in Sinadu's physics class, saw her in the library during the week of a big exam, and he said, quote, You could see she was stressed out. She couldn't seem to study. Her face seemed very worried, end quote. Also, according to the New York Times, Sinadu's biology professor, Karel Liam, who also happened to be the master of Dunster House, FYI, but anyway, Professor Liam said Sinadu was realizing she was no longer the star student at Harvard as she was in her school in Ethiopia, which the professor added that this was a common realization for several students at Harvard once they arrived, not just Sinadu. But the professor also said that Sinadu was maintaining a B-plus average, and he did caution her that a B-plus would not be good enough for her to be accepted into Harvard's medical school, but he told her it would, in fact, still get her into other good medical schools in the country. He said Senadu seemed to take the news well, and when she left his office, she seemed happy and upbeat and walked out with a smile. But apparently, inside, deep down, this stressed her out and she became extremely self-absorbed and self-critical, at least to a greater degree than she already was. But I do want to point out that Sinadu didn't just sit back and allow herself to spiral. She actually tried numerous times to seek help and relief, not just by desperately trying to make friends, but also by reaching out to campus resources. One of those resources was the counseling services on campus, but for some reason, students were only allowed to see a therapist once a month. Um, If you have serious mental health concerns and are actively trying to seek help, I can promise you that once a month is nowhere near enough time to adequately address those concerns. In his article for Washington Monthly, Shank reported, quote, For a lost young woman, thousands of miles from home without friends, Harvard offered nothing except a two hour orientation for foreign students and occasional therapy sessions. With a doctor of education. Y'all, the therapist wasn't even a legit therapist. Harvard, of all places, needed to have a psychologist or psychiatrist on staff, especially when students are being knocked on their asses left and right because of the insane, intense academic rigor. Also, and this is going to make you really cringe, but shortly before the actual murder-suicide, Sinadu's therapist from counseling services tried to reach her. Not because he sensed danger or was worried about Sinadu. no. It's because he wanted to cancel the one appointment they had that month. Strike two, Harvard. Strike two. So as you can see, Sinadu was deeply emotionally disturbed. But when she met Trang their sophomore year and the two were paired up as roommates, Sinadu felt like she met someone who she could actually relate to in Trang. Someone she could build a genuine friendship with. But I'm sure you can imagine by now that Sinadu wasn't necessarily the easiest person to be friends with and get to know. For starters, like I said, she basically began idolizing Trang, trying to spend every waking minute with her, following her around. On the Sisters Who Kill podcast, they described it as Sinadu latching on to Trang, but she also became kind of jealous of Trang as well. You see, Trang had lots of friends while Sinadu basically had one, Trang. Also, Trang had slightly higher grades than Sinidu, but honestly not that much higher. She maintained an A- average compared to Sinidu's B+. But Trang didn't take it as hard as Sinidu. She didn't let the academic pressures bother her like Sinidu did. Plus, Sinidu was envious that Trang got to see her family so often, like every weekend, whereas Sinidu had only seen her family once in three years. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, like I did, why she was so upset that she couldn't see her family when she was basically talking trash on them in her diary. Well, the only conclusion I can draw is that even though she didn't have the nicest things to say about them, at the end of the day, they were still her family. And since those were the only people she had ever really been around all her life, they were like a comfort for her, like she was homesick, to say the least. Hey, y'all. I want to take the time to tell you about a podcast I recently started listening to. It's called Ghost Town. And each week, actually twice each week on Mondays and Wednesdays, hosts Rebecca Lieb and Jason Horton bring you unique stories covering and exploring some of the most mysterious and interesting places on Earth, like haunted hotels, abandoned malls, deserted amusement parks, Seriously, for some odd reason, deserted amusement parks both intrigue me and freak me the heck out. I mean, I love amusement parks, but deserted ones? (laughs) They also cover locations of infamous true crimes, weird history, and more. So go check out Ghost Town, available wherever you listen to podcasts. After rooming together their sophomore year, Trang was having second thoughts about rooming with Sinedu again their junior year. This was not only because Sinedu was so latched onto her, but also because Sinedu became a terrible roommate. The Sisters Who Kill podcast said Sinedu became messy and started leaving fruit and other food out. And she also started playing loud music, which we know if you're trying to study, that's definitely not a good mix. So Trang became increasingly frustrated at one point, even putting a sheet in the middle of the room and was basically like, "Okay, this is my side. That's your side. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. Then after the fall semester, Trang requested a roommate change for the spring, but she was actually denied with the school saying it was hard to change in the middle of the school year. So the following spring in 1995, Trang started staying other places with friends and at home in Boston with her family, basically anywhere that Sinidu wasn't. So when this friendship failed and Trang tried putting up some friendship boundaries between them, Sinadu got angry and began spiraling even further out of control, especially toward the end of the spring semester when Trang told her she had indeed found a different roommate for their senior year and would officially no longer be rooming with her. For the last three weeks that the two young women did room together, Sinadu had become so distraught with Trang's decision to move out that she stopped talking to her altogether. According to the New York Times, in the final two months of living together, so probably April and May of 1995, Sinadu stopped taking phone messages for Trang and refused to speak to her at all. Also, the New York Daily reported that Senadu sent a letter to Trang in April of 1995 as well, basically saying she felt abandoned by Trang's decision to room with someone else. In that letter, she wrote, quote, I thought we were going to do stuff together. You'll always have a family to go to, and I am going to have no one, end quote. Then, something happened several days before the murder-suicide that is sure to send chills down your spine. Just... Five days prior to the incident, Senadu sent a portrait of herself to the Crimson, Harvard student newspaper, with a note that read, quote, keep this picture, there will soon be a very juicy story involving the person in this picture, end quote. But let me ask you, do you think the students on the newspaper staff did anything about this odd cryptic note? Nope, not at all. And because nobody really knew the person in the picture and I guess the note didn't have a return address or anything on it, the newspaper staff just tossed it in the trash and assumed it was some type of prank or joke that's strike three, Harvard. And no, honestly, I'm not even blaming the students on the newspaper staff. I'm blaming their advisor or whoever is in charge of them. If something is that strange and out of the ordinary, I mean, I don't think they were getting creepy notes with photos attached to it every day or anything. So it was definitely strange and out of the ordinary. And so then they should have been trained to follow up on that kind of stuff, send it to the police, try to figure out who the heck was in the photo, something, anything would have been better than ignoring it and tossing it out. Also, prior to the murder-suicide, Sinadu wrote something even more disturbing in her diary, which hinted that the whole thing was in fact premeditated. I mean, you know, in case the note she sent to the Crimson wasn't enough proof. But in her diary, she wrote, quote, the bad way out is suicide, the good way, killing, savoring their fear, and then suicide, End quote. So with all this going on, let's move on to the day before the murder on Saturday, May 27th, 1995. If you remember, I said Synodu missed a final exam and was marked absent from class. But while she was absent, the New York Times reported, she was in her room crying the whole time, possibly even journaling, and basically just visibly upset that her roommate was leaving her. We know this because one of Trang's friends, 26-year-old Tao Nguyen, was staying in the dormitory with them at the time because she was helping Trang pack and get ready to move out for the summer. Tao, who was a recent refugee from Vietnam, was a witness to the entire tragedy, and it's by her account that we know exactly what happened. According to the New York Times, police said Tao woke up on Sunday, May 28th, to an alarm clock going off at about 8 a.m. When she awoke, she discovered Sinadu in the middle of stabbing Tring multiple times. In a gut knee jerk reaction, Tao tried to intervene and stop Sinadu, but when she did, she was attacked and stabbed too. Luckily, Tao was able to get away, though, and she ran outside to the courtyard of Dunster House, hysterically screaming for help the whole time. She kept screaming repeatedly, quote, someone killed my friend, end quote. And as she herself was also bleeding, she was also screaming out, help me, I'm hurt. According to the Washington Post, Tao and Trang were sleeping head to toe in Trang's bed. So, you know, like true sleepover style, like one was had their head and their feet one way and then the other one had their head and their feet the other way. Anyway, so when Tao woke up, she was literally in the middle of Sinadu stabbing Trang. Tao also said that she thinks Sinadu pre-planned the brutal attack and that Sinadu was quote crazy looking, end quote, and that she looked incredibly determined and hell-bent on killing Trang. After Tao fled and ran out of the room, Sinadu barricaded herself in the bathroom that the two roommates shared. By the time police arrived on scene, though, it was too late to save either one of them. Sinadu had stabbed Trang 45 times, and then she ran to the bathroom, rigged up a homemade noose in the shower stall, and hanged herself. According to Trang's autopsy, there were cuts on Trang's hands, which meant she tried to fight off Sinadu. but there were also tons of stab wounds on her face, neck, chest, and legs. The Harvard Crimson reported that Synadu used a buck knife or a type of hunting knife with an average blade length of about six to eight inches. Both women were rushed to Cambridge Hospital where they were both declared deceased. So let's go back to those strikes I kept adding up against Harvard. You see, there were so many things that happened that should have been documented and addressed. The first thing was the five page letter she sent to strangers in the phone book. As soon as they found out about this erratic behavior, she should have been placed on the school's radar immediately and then monitored closely for any other types of incidents or behavior, such as when the Crimson newspaper received that photo of Sinadu with the odd note attached to it, and when Cinedu missed her exam, because actually she missed several exams during the last week of school, not just the one, according to the Harvard Crimson. But honestly, it seems like Harvard was more worried about its reputation and academic rigor than about the mental well-being of its students. I mean, first of all, who has a doctor of education on staff as a therapist? You have tons of money, Harvard. You couldn't spring for an actual psychologist or two. Oh, but you can afford to have a team of 11 in-house lawyers on hand. Also, at the time, it seemed like Harvard just didn't take mental health very seriously, or, or maybe a better description was that they didn't take the mental health of their undergraduate students very seriously. For example, Schenck reported for the Washington Monthly that a freshman student reached out to his advisor, John Fox, who was a former dean of the college. The student confided in Fox and told him he needed counseling and medication, and instead of trying to help the student, Fox belittled him and gave an appalling response. He said, quote, I have received my medical care from the university for over 40 years and am entirely satisfied. Your attacks on all things Harvard are tiresome. If you don't like it here, go away, end quote. Now, I will say that higher education in general has made great strides in dealing with student mental health just in the past decade alone. And counseling services on campuses, well, even when I was in college in the early 2000s, most were not equipped to deal with mental health. Services were more geared toward providing college and career advice rather than mental health assistance. But as the need for mental health services grew, colleges and universities started offering those services and employing more psychologists and psychiatrists to be on staff. Regardless, it seems like Harvard should have had something in place that would alert administration and faculty about such a disturbed young woman, you know, to help. Well, I will say that Harvard does have this in place now, as do most colleges and universities. It's usually some type of threat assessment and behavior team or committee. I know this because I'm currently the co-chair of TABIT at the college where I'm employed, which stands for Threat Assessment and Behavioral Intervention Team. At the previous university I worked at, the team was also called something similar. And at Harvard, they actually have the BACT the BACT, which is the Behavioral Assessment and Consultation Team. According to Harvard's website, the BACT, or B-A-C-T, was formed in 2012, so 17 years after the murder-suicide of Trang Ho and Sinadu Tedesi. But regardless, the team is, quote, intended as a multidisciplinary resource to provide university officials and others with expertise and counsel when when confronted with a situation that could present a risk to the safety of the campus. BACT is an interdisciplinary team consisting of subject matter experts from law enforcement, mental health services, academic services, human resources, student affairs, employee assistance, and legal counsel. BACT employs a proactive, collaborative, coordinated, and fact-based process. Working in concert with the school or department, BACT brings its expertise to the identification, assessment, consultation, intervention, and management of situations that pose or may potentially pose a threat to the safety and well-being of the campus community. End quote. Now, clearly, BACT is a very good organization, and I'm sure it really probably does identify students like Sinedu Tedessi now, but it just would have been much easier. And this whole situation probably could have been, I shouldn't say easier, but this whole situation probably could have been prevented had they had BACT or something like it back in 1995. Anyway, I feel like I focused a lot of time in this episode on Sinadu because, I mean, I was explaining what she was going through and how her behavior and feelings festered and escalated as she quite literally spiraled out of control. But I'd like to end the episode talking more about Trang, because at the end of the day, she was the victim, an innocent young woman whose life was tragically taken far too soon. Also, Trang was an incredibly gifted person with a kind and gentle soul who only wanted to spend her days helping others. Y'all, let me tell you just how gifted Trang really was. According to the New York Times, only a few years after arriving to the US, Trang was chosen by Boston Magazine as one of 25 who can save Boston, which was a list the magazine had compiled of successful and promising individuals in the Boston area just to put it into perspective, another person on that list was William F. Weld, who was the governor of Massachusetts from 1991 to 1997. In addition, out of 16,000 high school seniors who applied to Harvard the same year as Trang, only two of those senior applicants were given perfect scores by the Harvard admissions committee. Trang was one of them. And finally, I want to close with some words that one of Trang's good friends used to describe her. The friend said, quote, When someone dies, you always portray the victim as so perfect and good. But with Trang, it's really true. She really was that perfect. End quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 24. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media, where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Or if you want to request a specific case or story, you can email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com because like I said, this was my first official listener requested episode. So again, you can email me at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.